This is Sunrise, the who, what, when, where, why, and WTF of Florida politics. I'm Rick Flagg reporting from Tallahassee, where state officials say they have a plan for the safe reopening of public schools. You'll hear from the governor and the state education commissioner. Another record for coronavirus in Florida, and not in a good way. 1,698 new cases were reported Thursday. That is the largest one-day increase since the pandemic began. There have now been more than 69,000 confirmed cases of COVID-19 in Florida. The Department of Health reports 47 new deaths. The total number of fatalities in the Sunshine State is now 2,938. Florida Tax Watch says it found 180 turkeys in the new state budget that should be vetoed by the governor because they got through there through some sort of hanky-panky and did not go through the regular appropriations process. Two state lawmakers from Tampa say they've begun work on three bills to respond to the death of George Floyd and the demonstrations by Black Lives Matter. A deep dive today on some of the racial inequities that have been exposed in Florida because of COVID-19. Blacks and Latinos are paying a much higher price during the pandemic. We'll also have your daily calendar of events and check in with one man and two women who are doing their best to live down to the standards set by Florida Man. And now the top stories on Sunrise for Friday, June 12th. Governor Ron DeSantis unveils a plan for the reopening of public schools, saying the economy depends on them. He expects classrooms to be at full capacity when the new academic year begins in August. I know our kids have been uh, um, in, in difficult circumstances for the past uh, really couple months now. Getting uh, uh, back on our feet in the school year um, I think is going to be really, really important for the well-being of our kids. Um, but I also think it's important uh, for a lot of parents who've had to juggle an awful lot uh, over these last couple months. State Education Commissioner Richard Corcoran believes schools can reopen safely and the kids won't be spreading COVID-19 to their teachers as long as everyone takes precautions. The message should be loud and clear. What we are saying uh, with a strong recommendation to our great superintendents that we work with, we want schools fully open in the fall because there is no better way to educate our kids than have that great teacher in front of that child. We also know that they are not at a low risk, they are at an extremely low risk, not only of contracting it, but even spreading it. All of that data is in. And so we're saying, let's get what, what we do know is not having that world-class education with that teacher in front of that child there is real significant long-term harm that you can't recover. And so we're saying open up the schools, let's get the best educational environment, let's keep everybody safe in our educational community, and, and, and now attack, like no other state has before, the achievement gap. If, if we lose students anywhere in this country around third grade, um, that's basically almost 100% of your dropouts. It's, it's uh, almost 85% of your interactions with the juvenile justice system. And so we have got to get in there, grab hold of these kids and end the achievement gap and get to a 90% literacy rate. No other state will come close to that. The feds gave Florida almost $900 million in stimulus funding for education. Governor DeSantis says they'll use some of that money to close the achievement gap that was exacerbated by the shutdown. $64 million will, will be provided to close achievement gaps that have likely been exacerbated during the pandemic. These funds will provide a four to five week summer program on school campuses to students from K through five who are identified with a substantial deficiency in reading based on assessment and teacher recommendations. Plan also focuses on an intensive effort to improve student reading proficiency. Our goal is to have 90% of students proficient in reading by 2024, and the investments we make this summer and for the upcoming school year will aid us in reaching that goal. 
Within our plan, we invest $20 million to engage school districts and schools in identifying and adopting the best reading curriculum and supplemental instructional materials to drive teaching and learning from grades K through 3. Additionally, we will dedicate $15 million to train and develop 2,000 highly effective reading coaches. Plan includes over $223 million for early learning programs. This includes $55 million to provide financial assistance to child care providers that remained open during the crisis with infrastructure, personnel costs, cleaning supplies, and other costs to maintain a safe learning environment. $16.9 million in funding to high-quality child care providers who agree to reopen as part of Florida Schools' reopening plan. $20.9 million in funding for successful transition to kindergarten program to implement summer programs for approximately 45,000 rising kindergarten students identified with limited language and emergent literacy skills. He'll also be using some of that money to bail out private schools that accept vouchers from the state. $45 million is set aside as safety net funds to ensure students don't continue to have disruptions in their education. These funds include up to $30 million set aside to protect tax credit scholarships uh, entering the school year and up to $15 million in financial relief to assist schools that have a majority of public scholarship students to keep those students enrolled so they can continue their education as their parents see fit. This will protect funding for traditional K-12 through schools by preventing large increases in enrollments uh, if students were to lose their current scholarships. The governor says their top concern for reopening is safety. But one thing to keep in mind is that the state cannot order local schools to follow this plan. Those decisions have to be made at the local level. Florida Education Association President Fed Ingram says no matter what dictates come down from Tallahassee, students will not return to schools until parents have confidence their child and their child's teachers will be safe and protected. We're still waiting on the governor to sign the new state budget, and Florida Tax Watch is trying to help out by providing a hit list. Dominic Calabro at Tax Watch says they've discovered about 200 pork barrel projects that were added to the budget without following standard procedure and should be vetoed by the governor. In Tallahassee speak, these are known as budget turkeys. The $93.2 billion state budget passed by the legislature for fiscal year 2021, which begins July 1 of 2020, contains 180 appropriation items qualifying as budget turkeys. The total is worth $136.3 million. The new budget takes effect July 1st, so the governor only has a couple of weeks to figure out which projects he'll veto. In the wake of George Floyd's murder and the demonstrations in Florida and across the country, State Senator Janet Cruz and Representative Diane Hart, who are both from Tampa, have begun working on legislation to address what they call the explicit systematic inadequacies in the criminal justice system and policing for black Americans. There are three basic concepts here and three different bills. One would prohibit police from using strangleholds or chokeholds and emphasize de-escalation. Another would create citizen review boards to investigate incidents of excessive force. The third would mandate a robust K-12 education program that details the historic and present-day racism that black Americans are subjected to throughout our societal structures. If you're looking for a sign that Florida is trying to get back to normal, consider this. The state office that issues concealed weapons permits is about to reopen. Agriculture Commissioner Nikki Freed says her division of licensing will be open to the public beginning Monday. COVID-19 has created so many challenges in the past three months, forcing both businesses and government to change the way that they operate. Even during this historic pandemic, we still have a responsibility to serve the people of Florida and provide the services taxpayer dollars go towards. That's exactly what we've done in the Division of Licensing. On March 19th, we closed our offices to the public for safety. 
But our more than 4,000 employees have continued working hard every single day at their jobs. Despite closing regional offices, our Division of Licensing is on track to process more than 420,000 licenses this year. We haven't slowed down during COVID-19. In fact, since March 1st, we've processed more than 100,000 concealed weapons license applications and issued or renewed 84,192 concealed weapon licenses. And that's with an average initial review time of just one to two days. That is up 98% reductions from wait times under my predecessor. So we've been doing good work all along. And now it's time for the next step. You all know what we've, I've called for a cautious, careful, phased approach to reopening Florida. That applies to our offices as well. So I'm pleased to announce that we will be reopening our to our public, our Tallahassee Regional Office on Monday, June 15th. This will be by appointment only, and we will have new enhanced safety measures, such as plexiglass barriers when taking fingerprints for all applicants. Also on Monday, June 15th, our online portal for concealed weapons license applications will return, as we will now have an office open for fingerprint services. We're going to continue with a cautious, methodical plan for reopening, and we will announce additional offices in the weeks to come. The last thing we want to do is contribute to a rebound of COVID-19 by reopening too soon. Steve Herm runs the division that issues concealed carry permits. They've made several changes at their facilities to protect applicants and employees from COVID-19. As we reopen beginning Monday here in Tallahassee, safety obviously is going to be our priority, both for our staff and customers. Uh, that's number one in our concern. We have done an extensive amount of work to add safety precautions for our customers and our staff as we reopen to accommodate as many customers here as efficiently as possible. Appointments, as the commissioner said, will be required for all visits, 15-minute appointments for those who are dropping off, application paperwork, and for that to be checked, and 30-minute appointments for customers who want to do everything here in the office. We'll be using a text application that we purchased uh, for use with customers, so we'll get their uh, cell numbers or email addresses so that we can confirm their appointments when they make the appointments and then when they arrive they'll text us to let the, us know they're here and we'll text them when it's time for them to come into the office. Masks of course will be worn by all customers and staff. Staff will additionally have face shields uh, and gloves when they are fingerprinting customers. We hope to be able to reopen additional offices um, on a rolling basis throughout the state, but we're following CDC guidelines and county health department guidelines before we can do that. A gun rights group called Young Americans for Liberty sued Commissioner Freed when she closed the application offices during the pandemic. They claimed she was depriving Floridians of their rights. There is a lawsuit that's pending. It has absolutely no impact on our operations, has no impact on our decisions to open up today. Um, I certainly, as an attorney, do not uh, follow the whims of a frivolous lawsuit on our decision and policy making, but we will continue to aggressively defend um, our actions and feel that uh, this opening um, is goes in line with what we have done from day one, which is to protect the public and our employees. One might assume that lawsuit is moot now that the license offices are reopening, but that's common sense, not legal sense. Next up on Sunrise, a deep dive into some of the racial disparities facing blacks and Latinos in Florida during a pandemic.
The problem has been there all along, but the pandemic is rubbing our noses into it, sort of like a puppy on a wet carpet. The question now is, does the puppy learn anything or just keep peeing on the rug? You're listening to the Sunrise Podcast from Florida Politics, for which we are much obliged. Florida Hospital Association members are safe, ready, and equipped to care for all Floridians. As our hospitals resume elective procedures, ensuring the safety and well-being of our patients, employees, and communities remains our first priority. Contact your local health care provider for information on visitation policies, access restrictions, and how to get needed care safely. Please visit the Florida Hospital Association at fha.org COVID for more information. Welcome back to Sunrise. A crisis can bring out the best in people or the worst. It can also lay bare some of the inequalities that are part of everyday life. The things white folk rarely notice because, well, it doesn't really hurt us now, does it? Terry Rizzo is executive director of the Florida Democratic Party, and she says COVID-19 has opened a lot of eyes. The pandemic has only highlighted and exacerbated racial inequality that has existed in this country uh, since its founding. The May jobs report that Donald Trump celebrated, and I'm putting in quotes here, showed that unemployment is still in double digits and actually worse than it was in the Great Depression. According to that jobs report, while unemployment is in the already dismal 12.4% for white Americans, African-American unemployment is at 16.8% and Hispanic unemployment is at 17.6%. We know Donald Trump did not create racial inequality or the coronavirus for that matter, but his failed leadership has absolutely made the situation worse for many of our fellow black and brown Americans especially. Trump's failure to implement the Paycheck Protection Program has contributed to this. Just 12% of Black and Latino business owners said they received the relief they asked for. Meanwhile, Trump let 40% of the initial small business funds go to big businesses, many of whom had ties to Trump world. Helping Black and Latino-owned businesses is not simply the right thing to do. They are major economic engines that provide jobs and services to our communities. The National Bureau of Economic Research released a study showing that between February and April, the decline in Black and Latino-owned businesses was more than double of that of white-owned businesses. Failing to assist those businesses snuffs out jobs and opportunity. You can't fix what you don't see, and Donald Trump prefers to ignore problems that seem too hard. That's what he did at the beginning of the crisis when he downplayed the threat of COVID-19, ignored the experts, and failed to prepare. And alarmingly, he's doing that now with a victory tour that completely ignores the fact that many Americans, particularly those in black and brown communities, are still bearing the brunt of this failed coronavirus response. His attempt to declare mission accomplished shows just how out of touch and careless this president is. State Senator Jose Javier Rodriguez of Miami-Dade says black and Latino communities have suffered far more than white communities during the pandemic, especially workers and small business owners. Anytime You have a crisis like this in a state like Florida, it's going to hit our communities especially hard. And in particular, uh, in a a place like South Florida, but it's true everywhere in the state of Florida, the economic mix we have here makes it it makes the hit even harder. Uh, We know that the those at the lower end of the pay scale tend to work in jobs that can't be done uh, from home. And we know that our hospitality sector is uh, that, that, that a greater percentage of uh, Latinos um, and African-Americans work in, in the sector's hardest hit. And 
one of the things as well uh, that 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 is not getting enough attention from our leadership here in Florida is how uneven this recovery uh, is. Uh, we are struggling to make sure that um, we can reopen safely without a lot of data coming from the state that is accurate and reliable, and also in an environment where uh, really uh, uh, everyday uh, working people and small businesses are being left behind. Uh, it is a big business-driven uh, economic reopening. Everybody wants to get back to work and everybody wants to get back to work safely. But there is a sense that a lot of people are being rushed back to work without first putting in place guidance, strong guidance for employers uh, and especially small business owners on what it means to have a safe workplace. Without that guidance, a lot of businesses are going into a competitive environment trying to reopen um, and not knowing how far they have to go to make sure that they uh, protect their customers and, and employees. And employees are, asked, are being asked to go back to situations that may potentially uh, put their health at risk uh, or, the, or that of customers and, and, and family members. We need to put front and center those needs of small businesses and those needs of employees when it comes to making sure that safety uh, is a part of our reopening. And so far, it has not been. Uh, our leaders at the federal level and the state level want to take a victory lap, you know, before we've even gone around the track the first time. Nobody should be left behind. Nobody is against reopening. Everybody is for reopening. We need to do it safely. Uh, and we need to make sure that all the sacrifices the community made uh, to slow the sp spread of, of COVID-19 are being met with policy decisions uh, that respect uh, our long-term economic future and our public health. State Senator Audrey Gibson is also concerned that schools will become more segregated than they already are because parents with money can protect their kids by homeschooling them, an option most low-income workers cannot afford. I believe uh, what will could potentially happen in the upcoming school year is that some who can afford to will will maybe turn to homeschooling. And so what does that mean? That means many African-American children will not be able to take advantage of that. Um, and so they will be um, exposed to danger in school um, and the schools won't have the benefit of a diverse population. And so that is uh, back to uh, segregation in education. Gibson shared those concerns about more segregation, both racial and economic, with the state education commissioner before he announced the school reopening plan. Your calendar of events starts with the Executive Committee of Florida Polytechnic University. They're holding a conference call at 9 to talk about a reopening plan for the fall. The State Acquisition and Restoration Council holds an online meeting at 9. The Board of Clinical Laboratory Personnel meets online at 9. Qualifying ends at noon for many state and local candidates, including legislative candidates who hope to be on the ballot in November. And Florida Chamber of Commerce President Mark Wilson, along with economist Jerry Parrish, will hold a webinar at 1.30 to talk about the second phase of Florida's economic reopening plan amid coronavirus. And finally, it's time once again to check in with Florida men and two Florida women. 
A Florida man goes to jail after trying to punch vehicles as they drove past him. When Marion County deputies arrived, they say 44-year-old Michael Allen Utterbach of Ocala was standing in the middle of the road. When they tried to talk with him, they say he became aggressive, refused to give his name, and resisted arrest. Finally, two Florida women are charged with vandalizing the home of former Minneapolis cop Derek Chauvin, who's charged with murder in the death of George Floyd. There was a protest outside Chauvin's vacation home in Windermere, where deputies say they saw 18-year-old Caitlin Benoit and 20-year-old Kimberly Guzman throw paint on the front door. Officers followed when they left, made a traffic stop, they found paint cans in the car, and Guzman still had paint on her hands. That's it for this episode of Sunrise. I'm Rick Flagg in Tallahassee, inviting you to join us again Monday as we plumb the depths of Florida politics.